Would you please open your Bibles to Titus? We're going to be concluding our series, Truth for Life, today by covering all of Titus 3. Just as a reminder on what we've experienced so far, JT preached the first sermon in this series, and the core message of that sermon that Paul was communicating in the text is fairly simple. We should live godly lives because of the gospel. Joseph preached the next message and essentially said the same thing. We should live godly lives because of the gospel. Now, last week, things got shaken up a bit when Nathan preached, because his message went something like this. Because of the gospel, we should live godly lives. You see, Paul flips it there. But here as we come to Titus 3, what do you think Paul's central message is? We should live godly lives because of the gospel. Our call to be followers of Jesus must affect how we live, going beyond our mere profession and our mere words. What Paul is not saying is that your good works, the things that we do, save us. His message is that the man or the woman who is genuinely saved will produce good works. All right, now let me just explain that. It's very important with all of this talk about good works, and I'm about to hit good works because Titus 3 covers it pretty much in depth. A fish swims because it's a fish. Swimming doesn't make it a fish. If you swim, you won't become a fish. Fish swim because that's what God has designed them to do. Dogs bark because they're dogs. It's an outflow of how God has made them. So Ephesians 2 says for us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. So the saving that happens to us is not a result of works. But then look at what he says in the next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our salvation is not a result of works, but we are created for good works. Our works don't save us, but just like swimming does with fish, good works naturally come out of the person who is genuinely saved because that's the work of God within us. So what does it look like? What do good works look like? It looks like obeying the word. We see good works in how we treat one another, how we cherish what God cherishes, and how we manifest the gospel through good deeds like service and giving and missions. And it's critical that we understand this so we don't put good works as a means of salvation, 
nor make the opposite mistake, downplay good works as though they don't matter. Good works do not save us, but they are a trademark of the saved. And that's what Paul's caution is to the Cretan church. In in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says this about them. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Meaning, the way they're living contradicts what they say they believe. It was a danger for the Cretan church, and it's a danger for us today. Because works of the flesh come very naturally to us, don't they? Works of the Spirit can only be empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is the fourth message, essentially saying the same thing to you in this series. So let me call you to listen very clearly so that the message God's communicating is loud and clear, and then purpose in your own life to do what God is saying. Okay, let's take a look at our text. Let's read chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we come to this text as we close this series in Titus, and we ask you as we have before, Spirit of God, fall on this place and empower us to learn, to see, and to be changed. And empower me to speak truth with each word that comes out of my mouth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, I'm going to just take two points out of this text. The first point is the power for godly living. The second is pursuing godly living. Let's take a look at verses 4 through 8. This is the power for godly living. Just read it again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. What Paul does in these, in these verses is he lays a gospel foundation. Scan that. We've read it twice here. Scan it with your eyes, even as I'm talking here, and look particularly at the verbs. For those of you that have been out of school for a while, those are the action words. Okay? Take a look at the verbs. Who is the one doing the action? It's God. God is acting upon us. He appeared to us. He saved us. Not because of things we did. There our actions are useless. But according to his mercy, he washed us with regeneration and he renews us with the spirit. He pours richly on us through Jesus Christ. And because we are justified by his grace due to no credit of our own, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Far from saving ourselves, this demonstrates that God is a God of salvation. That's why Revelation says of God, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He bore our sins, saving us, washing us with regeneration so that we become born again, exchanging our heart of stone for a heart of flesh, laying God's law on our hearts. And as a result, we become children of God indwelt by the Spirit, and heirs of eternal life. How do we become saved? Well, here's what I know. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but what? The blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then the chorus of that great hymn says, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, say it with me, it's up there, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What role do works play in our salvation? None. Salvation belongs to God. It is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus. 
And perhaps this is the first time you've heard this taught in this way. Perhaps you came this morning thinking that your good works save you. And that you get into heaven by being a good person. And today you're hearing this gospel of mercy and grace. Now, if this is the first time you've heard this, thank you for being here. I know you're a visitor because if you've been here regularly, you've heard this before. But if you are here for the first time hearing this, we're just so glad that you've joined us. And we want you to know God is calling you to believe this as good news. He's calling you to believe it today, just like he's called every one of the rest of us at some point to believe this. Salvation belongs to God, and today is the day of salvation. So friend, trust and believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior. If you want to talk more about that, talk with the person perhaps that... that came with you today, or come talk to one of the pastors after the service. You've seen a number of us today. Just come grab us. We'd love to talk to you about this. Now, for the rest of you, you've heard this many, many times. So I have some questions for the rest of you. Does the gospel still shock you? Does it still strike you as almost too good to be true? Does it still elicit gratitude, worship, and joy? Do you still marvel at the mercy, grace, love, and kindness that it displays? And I hope to God that your answer to all those questions is yes, 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 and yes. But if you can't answer yes, even to one of those questions, let me encourage you, that's a sign that your soul needs to be cared for. If this gospel has become too familiar to you to stir fresh joy and gratitude, rehearse it every day. Remind yourself of the riches of Christ and his promises. Who he is and who you are is a result of who he is. It's too important to let go because this is the power for godly living. If it's true what I've taught here, and it is, if it's true, then we are no longer what we once were. Verse 3 of this chapter tells us we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. You remember Adam when he shared this morning, sometimes we forget how much in need of saving we were. Verse 3 is a good reminder, that's you apart from Jesus. But now in Christ, we are something altogether different. We no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to God who rescued us and adopted us. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We've already recited what that price is, nothing but the blood of Jesus. We were bought by the blood of Jesus, so 
glorify God in your body. Salvation by grace has rescued you. Now, the call is to live like you're saved. Live, live like verse 3 no longer describes you. Live like the new creation God has made you. Power comes from being freed from who we once were. No matter how bad you think that was, the power of the gospel is sufficient to break you from that and free you to new life in Christ. But it's not a one-time thing where you just get freed and now God leaves you to yourself. No, he gives you his Holy Spirit so now we have divine power to tell right from wrong. You don't have to face the world alone. We have the power to act in direct opposition to what our flesh tells us is right. This is why John tells us that he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Our pursuit of godly living is proportionate with our appreciation of and meditation on the gospel. I want to say that again. Our pursuit of godly living is proportionate with our appreciation of and meditation on the gospel. Thus, if we allow the gospel to become overly familiar or commonplace to us, then the power that we experience for godly living falls with it. Milton Vincent says, the more I embrace and experience the gospel, the more delight in the worship of God the more expressive my joy in him becomes and the more I yearn to glorify him in all I say and do. What's the power source for that? It's the first phrase there. The more I embrace and experience the gospel. This is why through Titus and in fact through all of Paul's letters, obedience is tied to the gospel. Not as a slave master, but as a motivation and as a power source. Gospel-driven living is God-honoring living. Not guilt-driven living, not status-driven living, not compliance-driven living, but gospel-driven living. And so the takeaway from point one is believe the gospel. Cherish the gospel. Entrust yourself to the gospel. Never let it become commonplace or casual or assumed because the gospel is our power for godly living. We good to move on to point two? All right, let's go on. to Don't leave point one behind. Take it with us. But let's go to point two. Pursuing godly living. Now you've seen this before, but I want to show you that the Bible makes a claim on how we live as the gospel takes center stage. Ephesians tells us, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Colossians tells us, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Psalm 1 tells us, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Romans tells us, do not present your members to sin as instruments for, right, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I could go on and on. I'll stop there. I've illustrated the point. The, 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 the Bible makes a claim for how we live. We are not free to do whatever we want to do. Self-determining individualism is antithetical to biblical godly living. We don't decide whether we agree with God or not. He has the final say. And Titus 3 here holds out two categories of what our life should look like as we pursue godly living. It holds out two categories for us. There are many. I'm glad that we're limited to two here for time. The first is humility. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. And so this humility that Paul holds out for us is something that we are called to pursue. Not because sovereign grace or covenant fellowship values it, but because the scriptures call us to it. And our humility is something we express to all people. Neighbors, co-workers, social media friends and followers, those in authority and those under authority. Friends, Christ was humble in all directions. And we're called to be the same. So what could this look like? First, from the language in these three verses, our humility should result in submission to authority. You can see that. That means authority we agree with and authority we disagree with. Unless we're being called to sin, we're called to submit. As a broad marker, Christians should be a submissive, peaceable people. And this should be the case in church, in relationships, at work, and in our engagement with and about government and politics. We can do this, friends, because we know who has ultimate authority. The totality of God's sovereign authority frees us to submit to the earthly authorities he himself has put in place. 
And that should mark our lives as believers. Next, our humility should also result in obedience. The very word implies that there are rules, guidelines, and instructions that we come under. And this is very difficult in a you're not the boss of me world. So often we determine what we believe is right or wrong based on whether what we are hearing agrees with what we already believe. Just reflect on that. It's almost as though our perspective is the authoritative one and it is unavailable to be changed or questioned, our perspective. But you see, Rob's word is not the final authority. And join me, I don't mean to offend you, but brace yourself. Your word is not the final authority. God's word is the final authority. And if you don't like what I'm saying now or what any preacher in this pulpit says, your question should not be, well, I don't like what Rob said. Your question should be, is what Rob said in line with what God said? And then whether you like it or not is irrelevant. It has the final authority. We need to obey. That is what functioning humility looks like in the life of a believer. Next, our humility should result in kindness. The passage focuses on our treatment of others, courtesy, gentleness, avoiding quarreling and speaking evil of others. Our treatment of other people, yes, even that person, reflects what we believe about the gospel. And when we excuse ourselves to step aside from, these, from this passage and treat others the way we want, what we've done is we've stepped aside from the gospel. Harsh treatment of others reflects a, a spirit of judgment and of arrogance, neither of which can live if you are at the foot of the cross. So we pursue gospel-driven humility. It's a mark of Christian maturity. Okay, the other category held out for us in Titus 3 is the category of unity. And that's down after that first section in verses 9 through 11. We'll read those in just a minute. The unity described here aims at unity in the household of God. So it's another theme that Paul repeats throughout many of his letters because disunity is so easy. And disunity is so prevalent. But when God's people live in unity with one another, loving one another sacrificially, it speaks loudly of the gospel that we preach and profess. We are not talking about uniformity. Uniformity is weird. It leaves no room for expression or difference of thought or opinion. Uniformity is monolithic. Uniformity is man-made. And it's a bit mindless. It's not healthy if we are all identical to one another. Because that works against the diversity the church is called to. 
So let me define unity for you. Unity is a gospel-driven commitment not to allow our diversity to divide us. I'm going to repeat that. Unity is a gospel-driven commitment not to allow our diversity to divide us. It doesn't eliminate diversity, it actually protects it. And we may think differently from one another, dress differently from one another, vote differently from one another, but we have Christ in common. We share the authority of God's word in common. We're brothers and sisters with the same God as Father. And we're all on the same mission together making and building disciples. And listen to this carefully. What we have in common is far more important and far greater than that which threatens to divide us. Do you, do you believe that? Do you believe that what we have in common is more important than that which threatens to divide us? Then what we have in common, what we have in common must be our main focus and not the places where we differ. That's pursuing unity. And those who are mature in Christ pursue unity and protect unity. It's why Paul is exhorting Titus to call the Cretans to what he does in verses 9 through 11. Look at it. If you genuinely are going to pursue unity, avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warming him, warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Now we're going to camp here just for a minute. News outlets social media personalities of all kinds are happy to provide many foolish controversies and dissensions for us. And when we give our attention to them, we end up quarreling with one another. But we cannot blame them for our quarrels. They've tickled the bait in front of your eyes. We've reached out and taken it. When we do that, we abandon God's way for inferior ways that are unprofitable and worthless. Each of us has a responsibility to build unity in what we say and do. In personal relationships, that means living at peace with one another, refusing to gossip about people, even if you think what you're saying is fun, well-intended, and harmless. It's still gossip, and we must guard against it. We must also stand ready to forgive when sinned against, not allowing grudges, judgments, or bitterness to grow. But that's just in personal relationships. We also bear the responsibility to build unity in how we use our words in public. And you may think, well, I'm not a public speaker, Rob. Okay. Everything you post online 
is public speech. Everything you post online is public speech, and it is working either to build unity or threaten unity. Even if what you think is good or right. Do you approach your social media presence understanding that it's public speech and is being publicized through the social media outlet you're on? As followers of Jesus, we must learn to disagree well. Being gracious in our discourse with others, reflecting the heart of Christ and the ethics of scriptural speech in everything we say, in everything we do, and in everything we post. Even in the comments section, For most of us, maybe, I, I thought about just saying for all of us, so I, I put perhaps in front of that. For most of us, perhaps for all of us, that means that you'll probably say fewer words and you'll probably post fewer posts. Paul's very clear when dealing with those who create division. Warn him or her once, then twice, and then don't tolerate them any longer. This caution is held out for all of us. Let's purpose, friends, to never be the one who is sowing division into Christ's body. In personal relationships or in the church as a whole. These themes of unity and humility that are held out for us in Titus 3, they're repeated in letter after letter, instructing the church on how it is to be. This is why your pastors protect the unity of the church so diligently. It mattered to Paul because it matters to God. And because it matters to God, it must matter to us. Okay, a gospel-unified church preaches a bold and powerful gospel. Jesus himself said, they will know us by our love for one another, not by how clever our arguments are with one another. Let me close with this. In the beginning of Titus 3, it's a summary here. We're, we're called to pursue the good work of humility, submission, obedience, kindness. We then encounter gospel power, which is available for our pursuit of good works. We belong to the one who is greater than he who is in the world, and therefore God in that power calls us to be unified with one another. And that brings us to verses 12 through 15, which contain Paul's signing off language. But notice as I read this last section, even as he's concluding and giving instructions, he can't get away from this burden of good works. Look at verses 12 through 15. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn 
to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let me ask you a couple questions. I'm closing, I promise. Are there areas of your life that are largely untouched by gospel power? Are there those in your life who express regular concerns for areas that you tend to play down and not think they're that big of a deal? Did you once have a greater passion for godly living than you do now? Just remember this call from God. Because of the gospel, we are called to live godly lives. So let today be the first day of godly growth in those untouched areas. Pursue humility, pursue unity, pursue a life worthy of the gospel. And don't do it in your own strength, don't do it alone. Do it in the power that God provides. Amen? Amen.